Whenever you talk long enough about war movies, the question always comes up whether it's possible to actually make an anti-war film, the argument being that any depiction of war in cinema inherently glorifies it. We've talked about it on this show from our very earliest episodes. I don't know that we've settled this debate among ourselves yet, or if it will ever be settled with anything resembling a consensus, but where I come down on the question is this. You can make a truly anti-war film, but it's really hard to do. And you have to specifically try really hard to do it. And that can really be your one and only intention. If you let any other objective slip in there, it doesn't work. We made this film to really show the futility of war, and also to honor the brave Oh, see, you messed up. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you don't hear debates about if it is in fact possible to make a war film that honors the brave soldiers who fought and sacrificed in this conflict or that. We all pretty much agree it's possible, it's just a question of how well the movie succeeds or how badly it fails. Does it depict the on-the-ground facts faithfully and accurately? Does it embellish the deeds of heroism and or villainy in the name of nationalism and or box office returns? And to be fair, you also need to grant a little bit of leeway in the name of cinematic quality, because if you make a movie that's a faithful depiction of true events, but your movie sucks shit, how well is that honoring the people involved? If there is a flaw in today's film, it likely comes from trying to serve all of those purposes simultaneously, depicting some remarkably random misfortunes that highlight how pointless the whole endeavor can be, and illustrating in broad strokes the questionable objectives and frustrating nature of the US actions in Somalia, while also emphasizing some genuinely inspiring acts of real-life heroism along the way. And it makes sense that there would be that kind of internal thematic conflict within this film when you look at the production team. It's based on a book by established journalist Mark Bowden, it has some of the depth and introspection that you get from Ridley Scott in his better moments, and it's absolutely peppered with the heavily filtered boom boom splody splodes that you can expect from a late 90s early 2000s Jerry Bruckheimer flick. Whether or not one of these disparate influences dominate the others, or if instead they're somehow married into a cohesive piece of cinema is a matter of some discussion. What is not really up for debate is that this movie is a veritable who's who of familiar faces, from old standbys to up-and-coming soon-to-be household names, comprising an ensemble cast that, if not unique, is at least rare for this period of filmmaking. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So get out your Scrabble dictionaries and check for words in common usage with a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director, as we make some great coffee in truly difficult conditions and discuss this action-packed, star-studded, unfortunately timed, yet enduring example of peak turn-of-the-millennium filmmaking from 2001. Blackhawk down. Call it in. It's danger close. Somalia, located on the Horn of Africa facing the Indian Ocean, 
has likely been populated since the Stone Age and has a rich history dating back millennia. Unfortunately, its modern history is one of colonial usurpation dating back to the 19th century. To this day, it is one of the least stable countries in the world and has seen near-constant conflict in the last 100 plus years. Britain and Italy both had stakes in the region during the colonial period, but Britain took control after the Allies won World War II. After the war, the British gave control of Somalia back to Italy with an agreement that it would be granted independence within 10 years. In 1960, the state gained its independence from outside powers. In 1969, a military coup against the government was led by General Siad Barre, and he installed himself as president, creating the Somali Democratic Republic, a counterintuitive name for an authoritarian socialist dictatorship. That part aside, the country was somewhat stable during this time. From 1977 to the early 90s, Somalia was involved in several wars against Ethiopia, and various factions of ethnic clans vied for control of the country. In 1991, Bari fled the country after losing control of Mogadishu to the warlord Mohamed Farah Idid. This brings us to the period the film is set in, a time of major infighting between clans, a contested presidency, civil war, anarchy, and starvation. In 1993, in an effort to secure food for starving Somalis, the UN established a presence in Mogadishu. In June of that year, 30 UN forces, mostly Pakistani, were killed while inspecting a radio station for weapons. The UN's motivations here are disputed, but Idid thought they were going to disable or take over the radio station, one of his primary means of propaganda and control over the populace. This led to an escalation of tensions culminating in Bloody Monday in July of 93, where US forces attacked a meeting room with gunships and killed many elders and leaders of Idid's clan. This is one of the catalysts for the animosity we see by the population of Mogadishu against the American forces. In retaliation, several Americans were killed by Somali car bombs in August. In response to this crisis, President Clinton authorized the deployment of a task force of mostly Army Special Forces under the command of Major General Garrison. On October 3rd, a midday raid was initiated to apprehend Idid's foreign minister and top military advisor in the middle of the hostile Bakara Market District. The ensuing Battle of Mogadishu led to 18 Americans and one Malay soldier killed, with over 75 wounded, and upwards of 700 Somali National Alliance fighters killed. As depicted in the film, for insisting to be dropped at the crash site of Super 6-4 to defend its injured crew to their death, Master Sergeant Gary Gordon and Sergeant First Class Randy Sugar were posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor, the first awarded since the Vietnam War. Six months later, the U.S. would withdraw all of its troops from Somalia, followed by the UN in 1995. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Danger Close, a war film podcast. My name is Dan, and I'm here with my lovely partners. Katie. And Liam. I'm all excited because it's been a minute since we recorded, especially on the regular show. We've been catching up on our DCE recordings lately. Today, we are here to talk about a 2002 film called Black Hawk Down by Sir Ridley Scott, directing. Ooh, is he a sir now? He's been a sir. Is he a sir? It's been a while. Probably 20 years ago, if I had to guess. I, I never hear him referred to as Sir Ridley. <laughs> he's, he's very humble, is Ridley Scott. He is. Famously humble. Ask anyone. <laughs> and Katie's here with our mission briefing. 
Black Hawk Down is based on a book by a journalist, but as you would expect from Jerry Bruckheimer and Ridley Scott, it is not exactly true to life. Although the creative team did strive to keep as much of sense of realism as possible to both the story they were telling and the film itself, it combines the roles that real-life people played in some instances, despite its huge and impressive cast and streamlined some of the events for the sake of the film's running time. Originally, the dream project of Simon West, known for such masterpieces as Con Air and The Expendables 2, he convinced Jerry Bruckheimer to buy the rights, but eventually left the project and Ridley Scott stepped in to take his place. A choice West regretted later. Rather than a traditional narrative of following one man or even one group's experiences, the film chose instead to lay out the terms of the engagement for its viewers, then take them through the battle, mostly moment by moment, as the stakes continue to rise and things grow ever more dire for the men on the ground. This style of filmmaking was mostly met with praise from critics, who felt that it kept audiences in the moment, while others noticed that it leaves no time for viewers to reflect or question exactly why these events are taking place. Filmed before but released shortly after September 11th of 2001, the wider critical responses were skewed depending on location. The American reviews were almost totally positive, while those outside the U.S. found it jingoistic and somewhat thoughtless when it came to who the Americans were fighting in this battle. The film went on to win two Academy Awards for film editing and best sound, while it missed on the nominations for director and cinematographer. While watching this film, I kept coming back to one specific question. Do you guys feel this movie would have been different if it had been made two years later? Oh, wow. Not just like today or later, but two years later. Yeah. It's a great question. I also think that it's easy to look back on a timeline and, you know, look at just dates and be like, oh, September 11th, 2001. And then January, what was it? First, Liam, whenever this came out in 2002. It was like January 14th. Right. And of course, but everything's delayed with a film. So you have to calculate. When did they buy the rights? When did they decide to make the film? How long did it take? When was principal production, you know, finished, etc.? And then, of course, you realize that the actual release of the film has nothing to do with September 11th. It's just coincidental. Same with other films that came out around that time. So I think two years later is very poignant for that reason, because two years later, you would have the time to think back to September 11th, our involvement in Afghanistan, us accomplishing our mission in Iraq. <laughs> you guys missed the air quotes. But they were there. Yeah, I also put a sock down my pants while I did it just to, you know, give the full effect of Bush on the, uh, <laughs> on the carrier. <laughs> Oof. So yeah, I don't know. I may have to pass it to Liam to actually have some time to think on this question. But uh, I think it's interesting to think back on, you know, the timeline of things and where the U.S. was at when this came out and where the U.S. was at two years later. Liam, what do you think? I think this movie would have been nigh unwatchable if it were made two years later. How so? What What would have really been the tangible difference, do you think? If you can elaborate on it. I mean, it is tough to put into words, but like. I have a hard time thinking this wouldn't have been a fucking clown show if it were made two years later, like just with how, how hard everything would have been dialed up. It actually might've been less bloody. Oddly enough, if you made it two years later, possibly would have been rated PG 13 to get to a wider audience. So you might've had people swear less. But like, those are just things that kind of like go into part and parcel. Like it would have been 
a lot more palatable, I think, to everybody in these depictions and therefore a lot less realistic. I think you would have been punching up a lot of heroic aspects that in this iteration are just depicted. I think there probably would have been more like Nickelback or Three Doors Down playing anachronistically, just like Cuz Cuz. Right, because the only only music they use, I think, is um, Jimi Hendrix. Well, that's actually the Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yeah, oh. the, I think it's the Stevie Ray Vaughan cover, because I heard it, I was like, ooh, fucking Voodoo Child. And then I was like, wait a minute, this isn't Hendrix, what are they thinking? And then I listened for like another four seconds, and I was like, Wait, I think they're doing the Stevie Ray Vaughan cover, which is fucking respectable. And he died in a helicopter crash. Oh, so (laughs) I didn't know that. Yeah, I think they would have sacrificed a lot more genuine depiction for the propaganda aspect. I think this would have been a lot more propagandized than it is. It would have been the reverse release of what usually happens with Ridley Scott films, where the shorter studio version comes out first, and then he is like, okay, your movie sucks, I get to put out my director's cut. It would have been the other way around. 2002 would have been the director's cut. Two years later, if it was being released, it would have been the studio version of this film. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I know I'm still not finding the right words for what it is that I'm trying to convey, but like I said, it's kind of like this weird, mushy... 2003 feel that everything kind of had that is missing in this because it was made in the late nineties. Essentially, this is kind of what would have passed for jingoism before nine 11. So like now it doesn't feel like it, but it probably would have if it hadn't been for nine 11. Katie, what do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, the critical response really bears that out because like I said, there was a lot of, criticism for American actions in this, criticisms of the racism. And there were critics commenting on how this would be different and that it is, you know, from a time that is no longer in America. Obviously, they had no idea the extent of the change that was coming, but they could sense it. And this definitely feels like a thing from before. There's a really great book called Them, written by John Ronson, about terrorism. It got published, I think, this summer, or maybe even like August or September of 2001. And it has like all kinds of terrorism. Most of it centers on white nationalist terrorism, because that was the big threat then. But he does talk a little bit about religious terrorism and that type of thing. And it's very pre 9-11 and that's how I felt watching this is what I feel when I read that book of like just this complete detachment and this sense of separation where we can look at these things from a distance and Ridley Scott obviously is trying to walk this line of trying not to make judgments right he's trying to depict as close as possible to what happened and allow the audience to make their own interpretations to greater or lesser extent, it's going to work depending on who you are and your own perspectives, right? Some of you are going to be able to see Scott's own and everybody else who created this, his own like biases that are bleeding into their art, which happens with everybody. 
And the biases that they would have had, had they made this movie two years later, they would not have been able to have the distance that they maintain in this. I think it would have been a lot more Bruckheimer-y. Yes. And a lot less Scotty. Yeah, well, and this came out shortly-ish after Pearl Harbor, which was Bruckheimer's last war movie that he'd done before this. That, mm. uh, at least more than one review commented that Hartnett was much better cast in this than he was in Pearl Harbor. Well, and let's also not forget that we've already covered Ridley Scott's post-9-11 war movie. Right. With Kingdom of Heaven. Like, in the years following 9-11, we don't have to guess what kind of war movie Ridley Scott would choose to make in a post 9-11 world, because we've seen it. Mm -hmm. And it's, for my money, fucking great. It definitely wasn't no We Were Soldiers, I could say that No, no, it wasn't. No, no. And I mean, this is, the events took place a year, maybe, after, not even, shortly after the Gulf War conflict, right? Yes. Like, this was pretty close to that. And I was thinking how, like, this is Gen Xers going to war. Mm -hmm. This is kind of one of those rare movies where we see Gen Xers going to war because this is the gap between Vietnam and the Gulf. And it's a fascinating artifact because of that as well. That this is a generation that did not grow up in the same kind of environment that previous generations had. The biggest failure in the movie is how little character we get for my money but the little bit of characters that we do get it's just placed so perfectly in the time that it was happening i was you know seven eight when the events depicted happen and i very my my sister was just a couple years outside of where the youngest boys are in this and i remember what they were like you know it would have been absolutely impossible to make this movie, the way it is made, had it been made later. It was a pivotal time that you wouldn't have been able to go back to. Yeah, but I, I, I don't want to belabor this point because we should move on to other stuff. But I do think that if Ridley Scott was 100% in charge, the differences would have been somewhat subtle. I think with Bruckheimer and the studio and everything else being involved, the differences would have been quite pronounced, which is probably what would have happened because we all know even a Ridley Scott in the early 2000s only gets so much control over the picture compared to the studios. Well, and this wasn't his baby. That's, I think, the bigger part of it is that this was right. Bruckheimer's thing that he brought Scott into rather than what Scott usually does where he's making, you know, his dream movie or whatever. It is not a scot-free production. Right. <laughs> yeah, and while there are some references to politics and the bigger picture here, they're very minimal. Overall, this is a story told on a ground level from the Rangers' perspective, specifically from Task Force Ranger and the people involved. A lot of the soldiers who were in this battle were involved in the production in terms of consulting, training the actors. All of the stuff you think about when you think of a good military depiction in terms of accuracy of what happened in the battle, the events, the soldiers involved, who did what, etc., is cranked up because not only did they do the kind of industry standard at this point of sending all the actors to boot camp, sending the guy, the Ford Delta Force, 
you know, the actors who were depicting Delta Force guys specifically to the Delta Force training to talk to those guys and kept them separated, etc. But a lot of these people were still alive. So if you compare this to, say, Saving Private Ryan, which is a totally different scope, but just in terms of the length of time that had passed since that combat, you just have so much fewer resources available in terms of the people who were involved being dead or a lot of them being dead and just being able to interact with them, et cetera. Being dead or super old. Or very old, right. And, you know, memory fading, et cetera. Uh, whereas here, we're talking about an event that only happened a, a couple of years, four or five years before the production started. So you have access to a lot of the people who survived the battle, who were recently retired, et cetera, et cetera. So that is a very different thing and you can tell it's i don't want to say easy because obviously this is a tough production but it's a little easier to stick to the reality of soldiers on the ground when you have a lot of those soldiers still available to you i also think that one of the ways that would have been different after 9 11 is you would not have nearly the international cast playing these american soldiers that you have i mean there's more australians and english people yeah canadians playing american soldiers than there are americans playing american soldiers oh yeah josh hartnett is kind and william fitchner are kind of like the token americans isn't tom sizemore oh tom sizemore as well yes but I mean, like Eric Bana, Ewan McGregor, Tom Hardy, Jamie Lannister is, is what is he? He's Dutch. Jamie Lannister. <laughs> Nicholas Coster Waldo. Yeah. Why is the world so full of injustice? Because of men like you. There are no men like me. Only me. Is he Dutch? He has such a British accent. I Well, he's Dutch. They sound like whatever they want to sound like. Is he Dutch? Are we getting this right? Before the fucking internet screams at us. I know he's not British. Okay. Not with that last name. He's a Dane. Dane. Ah, same thing, right? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I think they're pretty different places. <laughs> not to mention a lot of these actors being really young and in the early parts of their careers and not being mm -hmm. as recognizable. I mean, Ewan McGregor is still early on. It was Eric Bana's first big film. I mean, Josh Hartnett obviously had just done Pearl Harbor. I think also Tom Hardy, just super young and unestablished. Super skinny Tom Hardy. This was right after his him getting off meth. This is very early in his career, which he... <laughs> Sorry, meth is not funny, but I had no idea that Tom Hardy was a meth addict. I also did not know that. Oh, yeah. He was a hardcore meth addict for a while, and then he got into acting to quit doing meth. Wow, okay. That's how he tells it anyway. Is he a method actor? I don't think so, actually. Maybe. I guess him and Charlize Theron didn't get along. I like how your really lame pun went just straight through. I know, just soared right over Katie's head. Oh, I got it. <laughs> I got it. it. It's, it's more funny <laughs> to just answer it like it's, it's for realsies, that's all. But yeah, this was his debut film, and it was uh, Nicholas Costa-Waldo's debut American film he had done work in scandinavian uh, film before but this was his first english acting role well while we're on lighter subject who is who is your heartthrob actor for this one at this time oh eric banna <laughs> okay he's mine too um... there are no other right answers in this he's so good looking in this i'm just like jesus christ hey who's hungry but he's a fucking badass he also gets to do a semi-CIA-ish role where I'm like, dude, Delta 
go into markets and spy on people by themselves? I don't know. I I, I, I would know. imagine Delta does whatever Delta wants. Is my understanding? I don't know. He is definitely the uh, the Elias of this movie. If you're if you're looking for like a counterpoint, as Willem Dafoe in in Platoon, he has that kind of energy about him. Mm-hmm. The slightly crazed loner. Yeah, but also like good dude who's going to talk you through your shit when you're having moments of doubt. You're like, oh, I don't know, man. And he's just like, man, fuck it. I don't know, man. I really had a hard time finding a heartthrob in this. Like, I, I liked everybody, but I wasn't, there wasn't anyone I was like, Ooh. I mean, I'm always like that about Tom Hardy, but he plays kind of a doofus in this, which mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed. I mean, you do have one woman to choose from as well, if you if you decide to go that direction for this one. She's in the movie for like all of three and a half seconds answering the phone. Oh, yeah. Okay. I was like, when is, when is there... A, a woman in this movie? She is Ridley Scott's future wife. Oh, oh, okay. Janina Faccio, an Italian, probably Facio, the way she pronounces it. She's uh, Costa Rican, mm. but obviously of Italian descent. I'm going to go with Thomas Eismore for that, like, exhausted daddy energy. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm going for. Tom Eismore is just like, he can't believe this shit. Got to respect it. I also have that energy myself. So, Katie, you're my fucking hero just for picking Tom Sizemore. <laughs> where I love it. <laughs> What's not the like? Exhausted daddy energy. That's what I'm getting from him. Because Josh Hartnett's just too, he's too baby in this. Mm-hmm. He's too baby faced. So, I mean, he's cute, but. He was always too baby faced until Oppenheimer. Like when he shows up right. with the daddy energy in Oppenheimer, I'm like, ooh. You're like, oh shit, you're in your 50s. <laughs> He's got some good daddy energy now, and like he's he's fine, and I like him in this. I think he does a good job giving us the anxious, newly promoted sergeant. At the time, my pick would have been Orlando Bloom, but that was because I was really into Legolas. Orlando Bloom is way too baby for this. I mean, he he, he plays the perfect role for Orlando Bloom. He gets the perfect role, the guy who falls out of the helicopter. Yeah, apparently during either casting or reading, he was also like, oh yeah, I broke my back two years ago, so I definitely know what that feels like. I could I could do that part. <laughs> the fast God roping damn. is all, uh, I guess, done by mostly the rangers who were there. Yeah, the real actors were like, what the hell? You guys trained us to fast rope, but obviously, realistically, they're like, dude, if we have rangers here available to do it, it's not going to be you, especially for a distant, you know, wide shot where you can't see anyone's face anyways, like, makes way more sense. Oh, and just random Jeremy Piven. Oh, yeah. I know he was a real person, but I wasn't sad to see him go. I just hate Jeremy Piven so much. Damn, Katie. All right. I am sad that that poor man, the actual man, like, had to be portrayed by Jeremy Piven. He deserved so much better. But nobody nobody knew Jeremy Piven was kind of a piece of shit at this point. Like, this was when he was still up and coming. Right. But I know now. And also, he, he did a good job. He's fine. Yeah, he was a good helicopter pilot. He's got some funny lines. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Cliff Elvis Walcott. I'll be your pilot this afternoon. Federal Regulations has designated this a non-smoking Blackhawk helicopter. For those of you enrolled in our Mogadishu freaking flyer program, you'll be earning 100 free credits this afternoon. And as always, the air sickness bags are located in the seat back in front of you. It's a good line. This is pre-douchebag Jeremy Piven. Let's just let's just give him uh, give him some benefit of the past. Okay. So the Army Rangers are the special forces of the Army, right? Okay, so to answer this question properly, Dan from the future is here after reading up on all this because I did not feel confident enough to answer Katie's question without screwing it up. So here's a brief answer to her question as well as an explanation of the different U.S. military units you see in the film. 
Special forces is an often misunderstood and commonly misused term. All of the elite groups that you think of, like Navy SEALs, Marine Force Recon, Delta Force, etc., are all part of special operations forces. Colloquially, we often refer to them as special forces, but technically that is not correct, as the U.S. Army's special forces is the only unit that can use that term, and that is the Army Green Berets. They are special forces. Everyone else is part of the larger group known as special operations forces. I make this mistake all the time, too. When you hear me later in the episode refer to special forces, what I really should have said was special operations forces. Their mission specialties often overlap, such as direct action, anti-terrorism, or hostage rescue, but each group specializes in certain types of missions. The Green Berets, again, not in this film, often work with other governments, military, and police forces to train them, amongst other things. I'm not going to get into who's considered Tier 1 and who is the best, etc. I'll leave that to nerds like Mike D'Angelo, who I'm sure has an opinion about this, and anyone else who wants to leave us comments. Generally speaking, most reasonable people with knowledge of the military don't waste time arguing who is better, just that they are all highly specialized and have different missions. This is just a quick overview to make the terminology less confusing. A U.S. Army Ranger, like the ones depicted in the film, is a member of the 75th Ranger Regiment. These are the soldiers who can call themselves quote-unquote Rangers. Ranger School, on the other hand, is a two-month infantry leadership training course that is open to all branches and job occupations. Visually, in the Army, on their uniform, the tab on the shoulder that says Ranger in all caps is what you get for graduating from Ranger School, as all members of the 75th Regiment are required to. The Ranger Scroll is an additional patch that only members of the 75th wear. Someone who has only graduated from Ranger School but is not a member of the 75th should not call themselves a Ranger. We also see Delta Force in the film. That is 1st Special Forces Operational Detachment Delta, also known as the Unit or just Delta whose members are sometimes referred to as D-Boys. This is a separate special operations unit specializing in unconventional warfare and counterterrorism, among other things. Delta recruits their members mostly from the 75th Rangers, Green Berets, and other special operations forces from all branches of the military. The military group we see in the film on the American side is called Task Force Ranger, which was put together and deployed to Somalia on August 22nd of 1993. And it was composed of B Company, 3rd Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment, under the command of Captain Michael D. Steele. These are the Rangers. C Squadron, 1st Special Forces Operation Detachment, Delta, under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Gary L. Harrell. These are the Delta guys. A deployment package of 16 helicopters and personnel from the 1st Battalion 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, or 160th SOAR, which included the MH-60 Blackhawks that we see and the AH-MH-6 Littlebirds. Not portrayed in the film, but also part of Task Force Ranger were Navy SEALs from Naval Special Warfare Development Group, also known as SEAL Team 6, and... Air Force pararescue men and combat controllers from the 24th Special Tactics Squadron. I'll explain those when they come up in another film. Here's the thing about Special Forces. They all cross-train in each other's schools, usually 
the school will be the special force who uh, specifically specializes in that task. So underwater demolition is something SEALs specifically are good at. Right. If anyone needs to do any underwater stuff, for example, the Marine Corps Force Recon does that, they go train with the SEALs for that. If you're going to jump out of airplanes and do all the basic parachuting stuff, you go to Army Airborne School. Like They're the experts at that because they're the ones who started it back in the day. So Priorities is determined by the history. Yeah, everybody everybody specializes in those things and special forces they're they're sort of in their schools are kind of incestuous in that way where they all cross train each other, which makes a lot of sense and then they all are prepared for specific types of missions just like the air force's pararescue jumpers which are special forces but they're specifically trained to save people and extract them out of fucked up situations. These kinds of situations perhaps? <laughs> Please don't at us if you have more specific experience with this, you're welcome to write in or do a post about it in our Facebook group. So add us, but not in a mean way. A good example of this delineation of tasks is exactly how this mission was planned and who did what. The Rangers come in on H-60 Blackhawks and fast rope in to provide security for the building. No one in, no one out. There's a little bit more of them. And they secure the area. Delta Force comes in on the little birds, gets dropped in surgically. They go in and do the hostage extraction or the uh, apprehension, whatever you want to call it, where they're pulling out the target. So they're doing the the very detailed work that requires a really skilled operator to do that. And then the rest of the Rangers come in on the convoy to extract them and pull them out. Everything's done in 30 minutes. We didn't even bring water, go home, wave an American flag. That's the idea behind it. Mm -hmm. Of course, that didn't go as planned, which is the whole concept behind why this battle of Mogadishu is famous and why this film was made. But that was the idea. And they had done this successfully, not necessarily for hostage extraction, but this type of building assault had been done like six times before, which... Based on a lot of the research I did, which I will put in our surplus ordinance, there's a lot of good stuff here. Real quick shout out to Kyle and Jack for providing some of the research for this episode and a lot of their footnotes and references. I actually read through all of them. There are some really good essays on what was the mission here, what was going on in the bigger picture, and what went wrong. And specifically, one of the things, one of the essays I read was clearly someone's master's project in the military called Critical Analysis on the Defeat of Task Force Ranger. TFR, as this group is referred to, by Major Clifford Day, talks about kind of what went wrong, what could have been done differently, and why, according to some people, this failed. And part of it is that they did the same extraction tactic and ingress that had been done six times before. So by this time, the Somali forces had gotten wise to how the Americans operated, and then doing it in full daylight which happens to be the time this meeting was going down, right? They didn't necessarily pick the time of day, but they probably should have adjusted their tactics for a much more dangerous daytime operation where the enemy forces kind of had been trained at this point to realize that speed was the main thing the Americans were relying on for this to be successful. And they got there way faster than they had before the Somali forces. And that's kind of where things started going wrong. So 
what you see in how efficient and how smoothly things go at the beginning is the interaction between all these forces, as well as the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, or SOAR, which was the MH-60 Blackhawks, the larger helicopters, and the AH-MH-6 Littlebirds. So that is specifically a squadron that is not only trained to work with special forces and do these kinds of special extraction, small focus type of missions, but they're basically trained like special forces. They Their training course involves all this like advanced first aid combat stuff. So, And it's like an elite force. So even just the helicopter pilots and the helicopter crews that are taking these guys in are specially trained. So there's all kinds of elite forces all over the place here. But as a lot of this research will show you, there's a limit to training superiority if you're not supported properly by the politicians, by your command, and by armor, etc. And at this point, the SNA, the Somali National Alliance, had kind of gotten wise to what to do in order to really put a wrench uh, in things for the Americans. So it's not Orlando Bloom's fault. No. Because I feel like in the movie, things kind of go to shit when Orlando Bloom falls out of the helicopter. And like things just never quite recover from there. I think that's partially because they choose to separate part of the convoy. Things start getting scattered. People start making bad decisions. There were already bad decisions going into this from what I read. Because specifically the Rangers have the we don't leave anybody behind mantra right i understand nobody wants to leave anybody behind but right they're like, dead or alive they bring them home they are adamant about that fact right yes right and i think what was going to happen would have happened regardless but blackburn getting injured right at the beginning didn't help right because they had to then divert three vehicles to get him out of there etc so yeah it was like diverting three vehicles but also as soon as he fell I felt like there were like six or seven dudes around him trying to like get him help. And I'm like, those are six or seven dudes with other jobs that day. And that's a good example of something that can't really be blamed on anyone else. That's just a thing that happened. The movie is kind of, I think, generous to that soldier because it shows him falling as a result of the Blackhawk kind of swerving a bit to avoid an rpg round yeah taking evasive action that's not in the book i think that's just dramatic license so it's quite possible that blackburn just screwed up and was here's the thing he's also depicted as really young and fresh and green which makes his line i've been training for this my whole life like kind of hilarious because i'm like you're supposed to be 18 like what do you mean your whole life like you've been training since right. you were in diapers to like <laughs> to fast rope out of a helicopter but in reality he was uh 20 which was actually the app i know that sounds crazy that it's like oh 18 versus 20 but in the military a 20 year old who has two years of experience with that unit is like a veteran soldier, right? I mean, he's, yeah. he's not an older guy who's been in other wars, but he's not some fresh green guy. So um, they were kind of, I think, trying to blame that for his accident. We don't really know exactly the details of why and how that happened because he had a TBI, a traumatic brain injury from that fall. So he 
blacked out completely, doesn't remember any of it, so we don't really know. But And it doesn't really matter, right? It's just an accident that could happen to anyone. And fast roping is inherently dangerous from what I can see and understand. I don't think you're harnessed to that rope whatsoever. Like you are definitely holding on. And so you see how they're putting the rope in between their feet and that's kind of the break. And the hands that are gloved are sort of loosely holding on to the rope. But you don't have a backup. If you fall, you fall. Right. I think the biggest point is when is when the helicopter goes down. That is when things just shit the bed. They did not anticipate the Somalis' reactions at all. They underestimated their response capabilities, underestimated what uh, the aggression level that was possible amongst these people, and that was a huge contributing factor because they sent in these helicopters. In the report that I read, it said, we're particularly susceptible to RPGs. And I was like, is there a helicopter that isn't susceptible to rocket-propelled grenades? Because damn. Yeah, I, I think from what I read, it's just that it hadn't actually happened in this theater, other than a few days before. There are some not-depicted helicopter crashes, and a couple of them happened two days before this, I want to say, and one happened during this event. So there was a third Blackhawk that went down. It just didn't Mm -hmm. go down in the city. It was able to kind of limp out of the city and go down closer to the airport. So a bunch of them got attacked. One of them limped out of there and made it to actually land all the way back at the airfield. Another one actually did get shot down, but the pilots were able to crash it outside of the city. I'm pretty sure those are two separate events. So They were definitely purposefully using RPGs to try and take down helicopters, which until this week, I don't know that the troops had really witnessed before or expected it. Now, obviously, an RPG is an unguided projectile. It's a point and shoot kind of weapon. It has a certain arming distance. And after that distance, it's armed. When when the warhead impacts something, it's going to explode. Um, I don't know if it has, if you shoot it up in the air, I don't know if it eventually explodes on its own or if it has to hit something to explode. But nonetheless, it's not, it's not heat seeking anything like that. So it's not designed to be an anti-aircraft weapon. But if a helicopter is only hovering, you know, 25 yards above you or something, it's not going to be that hard to hit it. So yeah, possibly something that they should have foreseen and had a lot more backup for what they were doing. Another one of the main criticisms I read in this major's paper was just armor. They should have had tanks in this situation from the beginning where they would have been much more protected. The infantry had would have had much more backup. They had AC-130s that had come in earlier in this conflict, like before this day, I think a couple of weeks earlier. The C-130 is, uh, you do see some of them on the airfield, There's those kind of medium-sized cargo plane with four propeller engines, really distinctive shape. Mm, mm -hmm. And there's a version of it called the AC-130 Spectre, which is an Air Force platform. And it is designed for combat air patrol and for fucking shit up, for lack of better words, on the ground specifically. It has a howitzer that just points out the side of the freaking plane so it has an artillery gun that it can actually fire onto the ground with like various targeting systems as well as like a giant machine gun anyways this thing is crazy and can provide a lot of firepower but the americans actually returned them back to their bases a little bit before this 
because the commanding general was concerned about the look. They were trying to get Idid to surrender, and they thought that the civilian casualties were going to be too high using that kind of platform. So a lot of these decisions here were based on a balance of trying not to have too much collateral damage and kill too many civilians and still protect the rangers enough for them to accomplish their mission. So admittedly, that's a very hard balance to strike when you're talking about urban warfare in a city that's populated by really no regular forces in a place that's a shit show in terms of the politics and the actual situation, really unstable all kinds of like women and children at times as depicted in the film are shooting at people and have guns. So like really messy and complicated. While you're mentioning it, this did depict the American soldiers, the Rangers in particular as what's the word I'm looking for being extremely conscientious yeah, of who they're engaging with, who they're firing at and who they're not because we have in the film instances where I don't remember which of the, which of the Rangers it was, but he sees the woman going over to her husband who was just shot because he was shooting at them. And he's like, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And then she picks up the gun and aims it at him. And then he shoots her. That was Kurth. Who's the one saying, don't do it. And it's smalls from the sandlot. Shut the fuck up. (laughs) Is the actor who I thought of as the little guy. He gets separated from everybody else, and he ends up in that house with the woman. Who, Holy shit, that is Smalls. Who's got all the all the little babies. Mm-hmm. The mother hen. Yes, yes. I think he's the one who actually, like, pops up and shoots her. Well, no, that was a different thing, because that, that was the one where he comes out the door, and the kid shoots the dad by accident. Oh, yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. That was that one. I think this is probably relatively accurate. This is just an example of showing you without having you sit through a military briefing or, you know, having the characters sit through a military briefing. This is just showing you what rules of engagement the Rangers were working with. Look, infantry guys, Rangers, special forces, they're trained to kill and blow shit up. They do other stuff too, but like they are thoroughly trained in that type of combat and especially younger guys, you know, and, and this isn't to disparage anyone. It's just like, I've, I've seen it. I've read plenty of it. It's not that they want to kill people, but it's like, you want to do what you were trained to do. Right. So you have to establish rules of engagement to give your guys the autonomy to know when they can pull the trigger and when they can't. And nobody wants to shoot a woman or a child unless you're a psychopath. Right. But you know, the story you hear over and over again in many conflicts, but especially this one is, oh, look at those guys. They're doing such and such or they're up to no good. But it's like, well, they didn't point a weapon at us. We can't shoot them, right? It it really just depends on what conflict it is. In some conflicts, I want to say like with the insurgency in Iraq, it's any adult military aged male that has a radio or a weapon is considered a combatant and you can shoot them. Early on in the invasion of Iraq, like that was the ROE. But it changes and the commander sets it for each specific encounter. And so here they're trying their best to not unnecessarily kill civilians. But again, it's tough when no one's wearing a uniform and randomly people are picking up guns and shooting at you. Another thing that and this gets into a little bit more of the quote unquote failures of the film to show the bigger political picture here is Something that happened before the events in the film is the 
UN forces were at another meeting or the intelligence told them about another meeting with some high level SNA guys working for IDEED. And they decided to fly in six Cobra gunships and basically blow up this meeting, which is what they did. So they shot their rockets and, you know, machine guns into this floor where this meeting was going on. And there were a lot of casualties, a lot of kind of, I think, people who were in the meeting who were civilians. The intelligence was kind of mixed on who was actually at that meeting. So they might have screwed up and killed people they weren't supposed to. That was one of the events that kind of started to turn the population against the UN and against Americans. Yeah, there were a lot of elders killed from what I read Mm -hmm. in there and that they had not anticipated that. Right. And again, Somalia is a place which had been in civil war for a while and it had these different factions vying for control. And like a lot of places, like Hamas is a good example, you know, you can have violent organizations that have certain goals but if they're the ones that are bringing in food or making sure that there's some kind of police in the streets or whatever then like that's kind of what you have going on in terms of keeping things under control in the city and in this situation which is obviously really complicated you know certain events happen that also turn the population against the americans so that's kind of what the movie one of the things the movie does not do a good job of is Given you any kind of understanding of what is incentivizing, especially the civilians here, because it's kind of like, why are just random civilians running around picking up guns and shooting at the American, right? It's like, it's kind of like, I, I don't understand what's happening. Yeah. You definitely get the bad, like the malice that is, that is at play there. Right. It's like, oh, the whole city hates them. Yeah. At least in, in that part of the city. Yeah. That, that zone. Especially with the setup of ostensibly Mm -hmm. why we were in there in the first place, which is Ideed being the major warlord that has taken control over most of the country, the other person being the president, and them kind of fighting against each other, and Ideed taking over food shipments from the UN, and not only controlling the food because he wants to get paid and he wants to control the population by deciding when people get fed – But also something that's kind of not really alluded to in the film is selling that food to like other neighboring countries for weapons is another thing I did was doing. So the way the film depicts them gunning down innocent civilians would kind of be like, oh, you would think that they would want someone to take care of these warlords that are stealing their food and shooting them. Yeah. And so the the dissonance there or the detachment between that initial intro and then the civilians just shooting at the Americans. It's like there's something missing there to explain their motivation. That's one of the things I think the film could have done a much better job of depicting. Yeah. Well, not just civilians shooting at the Americans, but like pulling the bodies out of the helicopter and stripping them naked and dancing around with them in the streets. Like, not that there's a context that could justify that, but showing it without a context makes it worse. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. like it's, these aren't people anymore. This is kind of just a zombie horde that is going to do bad things to your body when, when you die in their presence, you know, like that was one of the biggest criticisms of the movie is, is how the Somali people are not They're They're not portrayed with any kind of nuance. The only Somalis who we hear speak 
quote unquote Somalis that we speak are the spy who they're just constantly railing against because he doesn't want to go and get shot. Understandable. And then I don't know if that was supposed to be Idid. I don't think Idid is depicted at all in this film. I don't think so. I think it's just supposed to be one of his lesser handmen, the guy who takes Durant hostage. And then there's the guy who they capture in the beginning, the cigar guy. Yes, who was one of one of Idid's supporters. Yeah, I don't I didn't really understand his his purpose in the film, like for all of the things that you could have included in the movie. Unless I missed something, I wasn't really sure what impact he had on the rest of the story. Osman Hassan Ali Otto, he was a Somali businessman. Right. He was selling weapons to Idid and his faction. He was the cot industry leader, that's why. Cot is a very popular drug in Somalia. Or it was at the time. A stimulant that about 40% of the population was using. Right. It's like a mild stimulant. I don't I don't know what the compound is, but the effects are more similar to an amphetamine where it's like keep you up, you know, able to fight. I remember reports later, soldiers talking about preferring 45 caliber to the nine millimeter because they were saying with like a pistol. Because they were saying you could shoot some of these Somali soldiers with a nine millimeter pistol and they just kept coming because they were so high on cot that it really, it almost gave them supernatural physical abilities, almost like PCP. But yeah, Liam, to answer your question, I'm not really sure what it does for the story, but one of the driving factors seems to be that no one wants to write ID'd into this script or actually have him depicted by anyone or in any scene. And I don't really understand why. That was confusing to me. And at no point did I understand, I'm like, why isn't ID the big bad in this? Because he was. He was the one causing all these deaths and stuff. Yeah, we got the cigar guy in the beginning, and then we have the henchman who's... Who I just want to say, that guy, that actual dude, saw the movie and was like, that guy does not look like me. Right. I do not appreciate <laughs> your shitty, shitty casting. He does not look like me. I don't smoke cigars or wear earrings. Like, the guy went off. Which of all of all things you could complain about, that one's kind of hilarious. Exactly. I was like... That's your problem? None of the guys depicting American soldiers were really chosen for their physical looks either in terms of whether they resembled the guy they were playing or not. Like, that's not that's not what casting was doing there. Right. There are no Somali actors in this. There were no Somali consultants. They are not speaking the Somali language, which as someone who grew up in the Twin Cities, which is the second most Somalis outside of Somalia, is here. I worked downtown. I dealt with a lot of them as customers. Very nice people, generally. And they have a very distinctive language. Which is not Arabic and not related to Arabic, I don't think. No, it is a Cushitic language, which is both African and Asian. Mm -hmm. So it's much more tonal. Some of the nicer ladies uh, and the younger girls would like teach me words in Somali and they were always laughed at my really terrible pronunciation. <laughs> they were like, well, don't say it to anybody else, but you're, you're doing your best. Good for you. So I was like, what's going on here when I started watching the movie? Because I was like, this doesn't like look like the Somali folks that I have seen because I have seen a lot of them and this does not sound like them. And I went and investigated and sure as shit. And the Somali community has generally had some issues with the film because of the portrayal of Somalis. Right. Which one issue is the casting of nobody from East Africa, let alone Somalis like East Africans around the horn namely Ethiopians, Eritreans, and Somalis. 
who mm-hmm. are definitely different peoples with different backgrounds, et cetera. But generally speaking, they look very different for anyone who's not familiar from sub-Saharan Africans, from Northern Africans, even watching some of the behind the scenes stuff. This was filmed in Morocco. So a lot, right. uh, most of the extras who didn't have speaking parts were local people from Morocco. A couple of the guys, like the guy who plays Idid's henchman, I think is a British actor of Ghanaian descent, I want to say. Again, sub-Saharan. And their genetics are totally different. I could tell from the guy who was kind of corralling the crowds and working with the extras. They they show you on the behind-the-scenes documentary, which is like a little bit longer than the film. So it's a bit of fluff in it, but it's still interesting. Mm. He was clearly trying to... Put the guys in technicals who were going to be sort of still non-speaking parts, right? Not main actors, but guys who were going to be in the forefront of the camera to the most Somali looking out of the bunch. So clearly he was aware of the ethnic difference and being like, okay, if you're going to be way in the background running around the street, it kind of doesn't really matter because no one can see your features. But if you're going to be in the technical that passes in front of the camera, you need to be look look somewhat passable as a Somali. So someone kind of thought about it in retrospect. But again, I think maybe you stop by Minneapolis and offer people a trip to Morocco and say, hey, you like 75, 80 people. Do you want to be extras in a Ridley Scott movie? You're going to be like 10 meters in front of the camera because we need people who look like Somalis and then, you know, hire locals for all the other stuff. But they clearly did not do that whatsoever, which is kind of obvious once it's pointed out to you. Or they could have at least had some kind of consulting. Like the music is not Somali. Like it, it's it's very. I only know this because I'm a I'm a subtitles person, as as we have discussed. And every time someone is talking, it says speaking Somali. Muhammad Farah Aydin, Ayan in Somali's traditional song. I'm like, that is not! Don't lie! I felt <laughs> flashbacks to the Woman King, right? <laughs> it's like, hey, you are lying to me. <laughs> well, and it's always a little extra disappointing when it's someone like Ridley Scott, who we know has so much attention to detail, especially in terms he of- is British, though. Sure. But in terms of the cinematography and the look of the place, you know, the location scouting, first of all, you have to acknowledge in 1998, when they started location scouting and started pre-production on this, like, you're not setting foot in Somalia. There's still a civil war raging. It is a mess. You're not filming anything there. So you have to accept that you're not going to be filming in Somalia, and you're certainly not going to be filming in Mogadishu. So once you've accepted that, you know, they started looking for cities that would pass and Rabat in Morocco was, you know, to be honest, at least for a Westerner who hasn't been to Mogadishu, like it certainly works. It, You know, it's the right kind of dirt streets with some colonial construction and some sort of more local construction. From what I read at the time, it sounds like Mogadishu had a lot more sort of lower mud hut construction with several four or five story buildings here and there, but a little bit different than what we see in Rabat. But, you know, the buildings work. The extras, eh, they could have done a better job. Nonetheless, that's separate from the issue of just not really giving us any motivation or character development on the other side of the Americans. Like Liam said earlier, it's kind of like if they were fighting zombies, it wouldn't be that much different. 
Right. It wouldn't be. No, like the, what I was saying before is the, the cigar guy, Otto, and the henchman that, that captures Durant, they're kind of the other end of the spectrum where they're kind of almost hyper sophisticated and like almost mustache twirly in like a slick, cool kind of way. A little bit. You know what I mean? Where it's like, maybe they thought in the late 90s, early 2000s that that was a positive depiction of the other side in some sense. But if that was the thought, it really doesn't hold up. We know this. Without victory, there can be no peace. There will always be killing, you see? This is how things are in our world. Yeah, you're just giving him a line that sounds cool or makes him more bad, but you're not really doing any character development there, which I do always struggle with this in terms of point of view, because you have to consider, okay, but what point of view are you telling the story from? If you're telling the story from the point of view of the soldiers on the ground, well, the soldiers on the ground don't know shit about the motivations or the character or any details of the people on the other side. They're just there to do their job, do this extraction, get out, shit hits the fan. Now they need to keep each other alive, keep the wounded safe, and kill as many advancing enemy as they can. Like Eric Bana's character says, who? You know what I think? It don't really matter what I think. Once that first bullet goes past your head, politics and all that shit just goes right out the window. And that's very true, I think, from the perspective of the soldier on the ground. Whether Ridley Scott should have done something more and shown us a little bit more of the politics behind it, I don't know. I think he kind of does, and I almost feel like that's what the Otto character is sort of there to do, except it doesn't really have an impact on the story. So if it were just going to be the men on the ground, you wouldn't have those scenes. I mean, from a dramatic perspective, meaning from a dramatic story perspective, the Atto character, if nothing else, is foreshadowing. Mr. Garrison, I think you shouldn't have come here. This is civil war. This is our war. Not yours. He's the local telling the Americans, you don't know what the fuck you're doing here. You don't know why you're here and you don't really have clear goals. And I can see the future and it is a future where this civil war is going to continue and it ain't none of your business. And I'm going to do what's best for me to keep making money and controlling the situation. And you do what you got to do, but in six months, you're probably not going to be here. That's, I think, what's going on between the lines of that character's dialogue. So that's kind of how I take that scene. Yes. Is he's the person from the other side who knows what's going to happen. From a screenwriting standpoint, I think it's a little weak. Okay. But I accept that's fat that could have been trimmed off for a more concise story. Sure. Right. Or there's another thing that you could have put in there, like the context of the mission where they blew up the floor and like had a lot of collateral damage that instigated a lot of this negative feeling and ill will towards the UN and the US. Things that would have rounded out some of those motivations instead of just this cigar smoking mustache twirling guy saying oh this is a really bad idea i think you should just go home yeah there's a lot of trying to use shorthand scott i think is like i said earlier trying to walk this line of not demonizing the somali people right like i don't think that's what the film is trying to do 
and giving like some basic explanations. But I also am very aware that one film cannot be all things to all people. That's, I think, where this film decided to bring its focus to this group of American soldiers who are trying to pull off this mission. Shit goes haywire, and now they have to try to get out with as many of their guys as possible in fraught circumstances in a very already chaotic place. I don't think they did it very well, but I do think that they are trying to make that statement. In modern terms, I would I would say that it, it it's it's nation building is how they feel that the US is behaving. Is the US and the UN are coming in and trying to just flatten the actual political stakes and what's really going on on the ground in this country. Right. That's complex, difficult to understand. And the US and the UN are just like, we're just going to help. We're going to help you out. We don't care what you think. We're helping the way that we want to help. And I think that's more what the film is trying to criticize is that these people are trying, they have their own goals. And the US and the UN, really the UN in general, wasn't necessarily interested in aligning themselves with what was best for the Somali people, but within just like, let's feed them, which is great, without understanding the the much broader implications and difficulties that they were getting into. And that's a really, really hard thing to communicate in a movie like this without going super in depth. And I think you're right, Liam, I think the more effective would have been giving that understanding of what had happened just before this and why it's so easy for the Somali people to turn on the UN forces. Because as much as it's portrayed as mostly Americans, there were actually Pakistani and Malaysian forces who were also involved in this. And they were injured. I think two Malaysians died. One Malaysian soldier died and two Pakistani soldiers were injured. They were part of the rescue effort, though. They were not part of the raid. No, they were not. But they had also suffered previous deaths. The Pakistanis in particular, I think, had gotten in firefights with the local Somali warlords. So there was a lot going on. And I think this was how Scott tried to, like thread the needle. And I could give him credit for consistency because now that I think about it with some like extremely minor exceptions, there is not a scene in this film that does not have an American in it. Meaning the scenes are told from the perspective of one of the American soldiers, the general, pilot, you know, whoever it is. There are like little instances here and there of seeing some militia running around on their own, but for the most part, it's always... Those are all set up. It's all setting us up to what is going to be an American perspective. Which brings me to my point, because the whole scene with Otto, again, I'm like, why aren't they just showing Ideed having a conversation with some of his commanders and in his response to the Americans. And, you know, like, again, he's never shown. And that's because at this point, he was basically underground because he knew the Americans were trying to kill him. His time was limited. Right. But he was commanding this force. So although they limited their radio communications because they knew they could be intercepted and listened to and et cetera, from a counterintelligence perspective, obviously, you know, they did more like pass handwritten messages and stuff like that. 
again, the movie chooses to never show you a scene with him in an underground tunnel, for example, commanding or sending a message or whatever. And so that seems like a deliberate choice because in a movie, you can obviously show whatever you want, but it seems like Scott chose to only show things from the perspective of what the Americans knew and what the Americans could see. Even when you're inside the car of the CIA informant at the beginning, Mm -hmm. he's being monitored and listened to by the Americans. So there is really not a scene in this film where an American isn't part of the perspective. And that's not a bad thing. It's just a choice. So again, I'll give him, I'll give him points for consistency there. Perspective is something that you just have to choose. Okay. So the, the cinematography by, Slavomir Idziak and the film editing by Pietro Scalia are just fantastic. He won himself an Oscar, didn't he, for this? He did. Scalia did, yes. I think the production is probably one of the more impressive things about the film when it comes to the cinematography, the film editing. I would have liked to have seen this in theaters, honestly, in a really good sound because... It was fine, but when you're watching something on TV like this, where you don't have surround sound, you know, fine is what you're going to get. It's hard to notice, like, truly great sound editing. Because it got the Oscar for that, too, right? It did. Yep. Yep. I have surround sound, and I can tell you the directionality of the bullet hits and stuff is very good. Like, they deserved their award, for sure. Yeah, and I, I like that they made a point to point out the difference In that uh, really early scene where Grimes says, why aren't you shooting at them? And he explains, oh, when you hear it this way, this is what it means. And then this means they're shooting at us. Why aren't you shooting? We're not being shot at yet. How can you tell? A hiss means it's close. A snap means... Now they're shooting at us! And it is highly integral to the success of the film and its accuracy. And I'll tell you, I had a hard time following, like, what the hell was going on. At a certain point, I was like, all right, I'm going to just read along on Wikipedia here and see who we're talking about and where. And it was purely because I I felt like I was watching someone at a certain point play Call of Duty Black Ops or something, (laughs) because it was so detailed in, you know, we're going down this alley and through these doors and you kind of get lost in it. I mean, to be fair, they got lost too. So I, I think right. it's no coincidence that it kind of plays out like that in the film because the sort of fog of war and confusion of combat, I think, translates in the way that they shot and storyboarded everything, mm-hmm. especially considering how precise Ridley Scott is with how he wants everything. So the confusion that you're feeling is not accidental. He, To a certain extent, he wanted you to feel that way. Right. And I think the immersiveness of it is one of its stronger points, because like I said earlier, one of my biggest criticisms is the lack of character work in this and that immersive nature that is supposed to help us be able to better understand what these guys are going through is absolutely thanks to those two guys and their crews, of course. Yeah, and I I would add, combined with the way Scott storyboarded everything, the way he set up all the squibs and effects and explosions and all of that, and the way he introduced the day's shooting cast to that setup, from hearing a lot of the actors, which 
it seemed like they were filming behind the scenes stuff while they were shooting the film. So they were on location doing quick interviews and whatnot the way they often do for these. Mm -hmm. The feeling I got is so many of the actors saying, yeah, we didn't really have to act that hard because we would show up for our scene and get the setup of, okay, you're going to walk around this corner, get attacked, take cover. The goal is to make it to this building. Like Ridley Scott was, he didn't seem to be micromanaging the actors. He was giving them the general goals for the scene. And then he was letting them react the way real soldiers would under fire, which is part of their training as actors for this. So I don't think they knew really where the explosions were going to come from, what was set up to blow up around them. It's just like, here's your path, go do it. And in the meantime, we're going to blow this entire area to smithereens. They had hidden cam or somewhat hidden cameras as well. So the actors are like, I'm aware of the two cameras I can see, but there are five other cameras. That I don't even know where they are. So it's not like you could be out of the shot. You had to be on the entire time, which I think adds a lot to the realism of the performances and what it feels like to be getting shot at from a hundred different directions at once. I know there's a mix of practical effects and CGI in this couple of questions I have about the production. One is one of those CGI questions. How much of the dust from the helicopters was CGI? Sometimes it looked pretty good. And sometimes it looked very, uh, the mummy with Brendan Fraser. <laughs> Most of the dust is CGI, and that I think comes from the fact that they wanted to control what was being obscured when. And so oftentimes they were wetting down the dirt in the streets, specifically so that the helicopters wouldn't kick up as much dust. As you can imagine, from a practical standpoint, that's kind of a pain in the ass to deal with in terms of where it's getting on the camera, etc., etc. This was shot on film, by the way, not digital. But obviously, they then used a bunch of digital effects later. So yeah, most of the dust is CGI. One of my other questions was, and this is because of the pure shining ignorance with which I operate in my daily life and in most things. One of your best qualities. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly when it comes to like military hardware. One of those things where I'm like, I know just enough to be dangerous, but not in like the actually dangerous way, just the other way. You hear a lot of times when people are like, oh, well, they couldn't get their hands on this helicopter, so they just took a Huey and they painted it black. These are Black Hawk helicopters that they got for the production of the film? Okay, that's really weird if you haven't seen the making of this, that you use that specific example, because what actually happened for the first month is that Ridley Scott was negotiating with the DOD. They wanted DOD support, U.S. Department of Defense uh, support for the movie. But of course, as you well know, and as the audience knows, to get that support and get their hardware and get them to participate and help you make it look more real, they need to kind of know what you're depicting and how you're depicting it because they don't want you to make the U.S. military look bad. Apparently, those negotiations were pretty complicated because a month into shooting, they still didn't have helicopters Ooh. and they were trying to get these Blackhawks and Ridley Scott, you know, they went to Morocco. So he had to start production. His idea was to do all the helicopter scenes at first and do all the complicated stuff, but they had to pivot and shoot other things because he didn't know if they were going to get these helicopters. If I had to rent helicopters, I couldn't rent Blackhawks. And of course it's called Blackhawk Down. It's about the Blackhawk. And I would have had to rent Hueys. And Hueys don't look like Blackhawks. 
And so we went right to the wire in terms of negotiation with the Pentagon about their requirements as to how they wanted to be perceived during the film. But that negotiation took a long time. So I was already in Saleh, already planning, and now in the process of having to turn my uh, schedule around because I'd planned to do the big insertion up front with the Blackhawks to get the big thing out the way. And I couldn't because they didn't have the aircraft. And so I had to adjust the schedule and we just began the film knowing I had six Hueys standing in Germany ready for the black spray cans, ready to spray them. Um, and I was a month in to principal photography before I got the helicopters. So it was a little hairy. How the fuck does this just happen to be blind luck? Like you could not have pulled this off. Like Patton using modern tanks that weren't around in World War II is one thing. Like you can't call it Black Hawk Down and not have any Black Hawks in the movie. I suppose they would have just used Hueys and then used CGI to turn them into H-60s, but that would have been tough. and Would not have looked good. Yeah, like when they're messing with the tanks and saving Private Ryan to make them look like the right tanks. And it's like, oh, put some cardboard on it. Right, which is yep. fine when it's on the ground, when you're talking about something that has to fly around and is as complex as a helicopter. It can't fly with some cardboard on it? I mean, maybe, Come on. But... What kind of helicopter can't fly with cardboard on it? Stress test. So these were Blackhawks. These were definitely Army Blackhawks. They might have been from the 160th, which is kind of crazy because you think like those guys would have better things to do than film a movie. But yeah, like they were definitely U.S. Army Blackhawks. I am the ideal audience member for somebody who can't get a Black Hawk in their movie mm -hmm. because I don't <laughs> right? know that you could paint a Huey black and just be like, oh, it's a Black Hawk. Look at it. Look at the color. Yep. And I'd be like, oh, it must be a Black Hawk. It's, it sure looks down. It sure looks down. <laughs> <laughs> for being a professional in aviation, I'm not that much of an aviation nerd. But for one, side by side, like the H-60 is just much longer. It's like a limo version of a, of a Huey, even though the airframes are not related. But does that count in Scrabble? Listen, when we get back to the base, it's coming off the board. You touch my limo and I'll spank you, Night Stalker. You hear me? Yeah, promises. It does. It's in the official Scrabble dictionary, according to the trivia. So, oh, there is some creative license taken in that conversation. But <laughs> good callback, Liam. That's delightful. That's the shit I'm here for. You can't ask me about what whirly gigs up in the air are doing the right whirly gigging, but I know callbacks to lines in movies. Yeah. I think more importantly than pissing off the pedants and rivet counters who would have instantly realized that these are not H-60s in the film had they used Hueys, I think thematically it just, even though UH-60s, the Hueys, are still in use to this day by the military, mm. it would have definitely evoked vietnam more than it would have a modern quote-unquote conflict in the middle east or in east africa so that's another thing that the hueys kind of would have just looked off about even though again they're used in modern conflicts yeah like ccr starts playing and very different vibe not stevie ray vaughn what is interesting is what they did to achieve the helicopter effects, which again, they had real pilots, real helicopters, but when they chose to overlay things with CGI was an interesting process. And for being from, you know, you imagine they're doing the post-production in early 2001, it's kind of crazy how good everything looks. So if you watch the making of documentary, a good example is... 
the scene of the first Black Hawk crash where Super 6-1 goes down in the middle of that intersection and kind of it crashes towards the camera and lands on top of that fountain and then the rotors start to hit the ground and disintegrate. That was shot practically where they had a full-scale H-60 mock-up on a wire from a crane where they could slide it down the wire for the last few seconds of the crash and then release it so that it would actually get a full free fall from 20 feet or whatever, crash into the fountain and then come to rest. And then the visual effects guys realized that because the helicopter had been spinning, they needed to spin it and they couldn't spin it on the wire. So they ended up, I don't know how the hell you do this with CGI on top of film at the time, but they were able to remove the helicopter from the shots and replace it with a really accurate 3D model so that they could get it to turn the direction that it needed to turn. So it's a good example of a lot of stuff they went out of their way to do with practical, but when it needed to be augmented or even replaced completely with CGI, that's what they did. The advantage of having done it in practical first is that you have really accurate lighting reference and timing reference for the speeds and all of that. This is actually, if you look this up on YouTube, this is a great conversation that I found about modern studios getting wise to the fact that audiences love when a studio can say, this is all practical effects and we didn't use CGI. And so they sell that a lot in Fast X and in Top Gun Maverick. And when you actually look into it, you realize that it's like, well, yes, they shot a bunch of stuff practically. But then when this thing didn't turn the way they needed to, they end up just replacing it with CGI. So there's a lot of that going on. So when you read 100% practical effects or you know whatever the case may be, you have to kind of take that with a grain of salt. They're thrilling to watch. And I, I feel like they covered up the CGI bits, except the dust, which is really hard to do. They did the best they could for that era. But I think for the most part, the helicopter scenes, especially the crash scenes, look what I would expect a helicopter crash to look like. I mean, having seen exactly none of those. Yeah, so despite the fact that I've been talking for too long already about helicopters, I did want to mention that I reached out to my coworker, Gary, specifically to watch the film and give me his perspective as an experienced helicopter pilot to just give us his take on how accurate the helicopter crashes look. And he gets really technical in general when he talks about this because he can explain all of the physics behind what the surfaces are doing, what the rotors are doing. And I am not going to get into that here. DM me if you want some way more specific nerdy aviation physics because Gary's very good at that. But generally speaking, the one thing he did explain to me is that obviously loss of tail rotor in a non-combat environment is a rare thing, but pilots still practice for it and think about what they would have to do if their tail rotor all of a sudden stopped working. Obviously, the tail rotor is there to directionally control the tail, but specifically to counteract the centrifugal force of the main rotor. The main rotor spinning wants to make the actual body of the helicopter spin as well, and you need a tail rotor to counteract that. There are several differences in real life between A, a tail rotor not working anymore, and B, you through an explosion losing your entire tail rotor and possibly the horizontal and vertical stabilizer in the tail. Those are two different scenarios that can have drastically different effects, as well as the physics of what your helicopter is doing when that happens. So Super 6-1 is in a hover when it gets hit, 
And a hover is a much more dicey situation to recover from if your tail rotor goes kaput. Because if your helicopter has forward motion and you're moving forward at, say, 60 knots or whatever, then because of the forces acting on the two control surfaces, those the X basically that's on the tail, the vertical and horizontal stabilizer, even if the rotor goes out, you still have forces acting on those surfaces and kind of controlling the helicopter and making it sort of follow the nose and fly straight, so to speak. So you can move from that to an emergency auto rotation, which is a complex procedure that helicopter pilots learn how to do, where basically you control crash the helicopter by turning off the main rotor at the end, flaring, getting the air to push up through the main rotors and sort of cushioning your fall in a like ideal scenario. So Super 6-1 was kind of screwed because their tail rotor was destroyed and hit when they were in a hover. So they didn't have that forward momentum acting on the tail, which means they basically immediately were going to go into a spin that was going to be very difficult to counteract and control. And probably that crash is extremely accurate. Gary said for the second one, one of the things they did is if you watch the Super 6-4 crash, this is the one where they get hit by the RPG. And then as reported in Mark Bowden's book... Pedals are okay. No, we're good. Got a slight vibration in the pedals, but we're good. For some reason, the tail rotor remained intact for a matter of, I don't know, 30 seconds or something. And then it either came off of the aircraft or exploded or something more catastrophic happened where he was like, oh shit, you know, and alarm bells are going off. Now they're like, we've lost the tail rotor completely. And the film shows them going into a spin and crashing, despite the fact that they did have forward momentum. Now, Gary said the fact that you see the helicopter banking left and right is something that he thinks they just added for drama to make it clear that the helicopter was more difficult to control. But he said there's no physics that would explain that. That probably didn't happen. I did, however, find in interviews and documentaries, somebody who witnessed the crash of Super 64 from the ground definitely confirmed that it rotated around 10 or 15 times before it crashed. So despite the fact that they had forward momentum, somehow the destruction of the tail still resulted in a spin. So I'm going to give the film the benefit of the doubt and say that they're probably pretty accurately predicted with a little bit of dramatic flair thrown in there to, again, without having a pilot do a bunch of exposition of, oh no, we've lost this, therefore this is going to happen. Like that wouldn't really be a good bit of dialogue in a movie you don't want to do that kind of technical exposition so right i'm gonna give it a nine from what (laughs) i heard from gary hopefully he doesn't disagree with me (laughs) all right end of uh pedantic rant on helicopter physics I, i did my best I know we talked about it a little bit already, but you guys have any more of the acting that you want to bring up or any specific actors or or things you want to talk about? Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up Sam Shepard, who I personally have a love-hate relationship with. Ooh. Really? Because I I do love Sam Shepard's acting. He is also probably one of the most well-respected and prolific American playwrights of the second half of the 20th century. And I fucking hate his plays so much. Okay. So much do I hate his plays. I have seen them. I've read them. 
I've done scene work from them. I don't like acting in them. I don't like watching them. I don't like reading them. And this is a controversial opinion in theater circles. So for the three theater people that ever listen to this show, I'm sorry, because I know you disagree with me and you're probably yelling at your iPhone right now or whatever you're listening on. Because generally his plays are well-received? Yes. Okay. Yes. They're, they're very well-respected, very well-received. They are done a lot. If memory serves, I think Sam Shepard's theater work is probably the reason why we have Gary Sinise as a reasonably household name. Got his start doing a lot of Sam Shepard's plays on the stage. Man, I fucking hate them though. But I love his acting. Every time I see him in something, I'm like, hey, it's Sam Shepard. And then I have to read his plays and I'm just like, ugh, Sam Shepard. But no, I thought he was very good as the general. He has that gravelly, like, kind of gravitas in his voice and his face looks like it was carved from oak with buckshot. You know, he's got that, like, weathered kind of look. No one gets left behind. You understand me, son? Yes, general. And you see him getting more and more, like, frustrated and as distraught as a general is going to get in these kinds of situations as the movie goes on and then culminating in that scene where he's a little much, but uh, where he's cleaning up the blood on the floor. Oh yeah. Yeah. Was that a, was that a, is that a fabrication? Do we have, we have the data on that? Anybody got receipts? I'm sure it was. On the same topic, this leads to a bigger point where it's kind of like you have to consider how much dramatic license the writer and director are using here and what they're Mm -hmm. giving the actors. And overall, I felt that the film walked a pretty fine line because so there's the blood incident with General Garrison, which who knows if that happened, but clearly it's trying to show you something about him, right? That This whole time he's had to have this detached sort of, I care about my troops, but I got a mission to accomplish and I'm in the command Mm -hmm. section. And I'm sure for an older general, you know, it's frustrating to a certain extent. If you're not a coward, it's frustrating to not be there with your men. Lieutenant Colonel McKnight, played by Tom Sizemore, gets to like be there in the action, right? No one's ever going to call him a coward or say, you know, why weren't you doing more? Because he was there taking rounds with his men. In the neck. In the neck. I'm sure that's a frustrating position for General Garrison to be in. But also, there are other instances in this film where the dialogue like goes right up to the edge of being too cliched and too corny. But there's something about the way it's delivered in this film that, to me, it never crosses that line. And I think two examples I can think of are two of them involve Eric Banas, who... I go home. People ask me, hey, Hoot, why do you do it, man? Why? You're some kind of war junkie? I won't say a goddamn word. Why? They won't understand. They won't understand why we do it. They won't understand it's about the men next to you. That's it. That's all it is. That's a super tropey line that is accurate in the sense that soldiers and Marines and people who have been through combat will tell you that. So it's kind of like, well, 
Okay, right. it's a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason because this is how soldiers actually feel. There is a lot of you can tell them yourself when you get home moments. There's just something about the way it's delivered. Maybe they're not using swelling music in the background or the cinematography isn't highlighting it hard. Or thank an actor. Sure. Sometimes it's just like the delivery of the actor just just undercuts that tropiness. Sometimes yeah. there's a million wrong ways to say something and the one right way and they found it. And I think Eric Bana is a good example of that. Eric Bana is definitely the example Eric of that. Eric Bana finds a way to deliver those lines in a way that like you believe that he is an actual special forces operator veteran that isn't saying what he's saying to try and sound cool. He's just telling you the reality of it. Right. Well, and I also think it's it, with Eric Bana's performance in particular, it's not idealistic. There's a certain jaded quality to him that I think undercuts most of the tropiness of the lines. And that's why I think I found his performance probably the most captivating of all of them. Yeah, he's really he's really selling it. His acting throughout the whole film really supports what he says and that he doesn't say a whole lot before then he's just he's just giving this one moment to Eversman and like okay we've been together we've gone through some hard shit I'm gonna open up a little bit to you and then he's like oh but I work better alone and he goes off to go back to the fight which that was another question I had do they get to choose that can they just be like I'm good let's go back out there like Tom Sizemore does where I'm like dude you have like a hole in your face what are you doing? Well, he's also a lieutenant colonel. Right. The The vibe that I got, and I don't know how accurate this is, but for the movie, the vibe that I got was that the Delta guys were the biggest swinging dicks in Mogadishu at the time. Yeah, definitely. So it's like, he's going to cut in line and get his food. He's going to have his weapon any way he wants without the safety on. And he's going to go back out in the field whenever he goddamn feels like it. I think in general, because of the chaos and the live timing of the situation, there was a little bit of flexibility slash a nobody got time to be sitting there taking roll and tell you, oh, no, you already I got one check mark on your name. You don't get to go get like, I just don't think it was that kind of situation. They're trying to treat the wounded. They're trying to clean up the trucks, rearm you know, get supplies, get back in there and go save people before they die. So I think Delta special operators, this is conjecture, but yes, I'm guessing that because they answer to special forces command and they're attached to this unit right now, they probably have a little more clout. I mean, you see this with Fickner's character, Sanderson, when he's talking to Captain Steele, where he thinks whatever Captain Steele's decision is to stay there is bad. And he's like, no, we need to move. And he straight up disobeys a superior officer there who outranks him. It's a captain versus a sergeant, special forces or no. And he he does it in a very realistic way. He doesn't take the moment to be macho and swing his right. dick around and go, you don't know shit and I'm special forces and blah, blah, blah. He just goes, you gotta get out on that street and we gotta move. And doesn't try and humiliate him in front of his men. He is clearly disobeying him in front of everyone, which who knows if later, you know, they had words about that or or there was some action taken against him. 
but I liked that they didn't make it this big tropey exchange of like making Jason Isaac's character look bad, which he never really does. Like he's kind of a dick and more assertive. And while the superior officer walking in on a, on an enlisted man making fun of him is not only common in film tropes, but like I've seen it in real life. And it's actually a really good test of whether someone is a good leader or not. Meaning the good leader walks in on someone making fun of him when he's not there and be like, that's pretty funny, dickhead, you know, or like, hey, maybe when you like score expert on the range, you can talk shit about me. But until then, maybe like shut your mouth, right? Like that would be a good response from a leader versus actually saying something kind of like what he does where he takes him in. He's like, quick word, specialist. So tell me, Pillow, you understand why we have a chain of command, don't you? Watch that, sir. Because if I ever see you undermining again, you'll be cleaning the trains with your tongue. So you can't taste the difference between shit and french fries. We'll be clear. Who, sir? All right. It's kind of somewhere of a middle ground there, but he's in there with his men. He's taking rounds just like everybody else. He's not really made out to be a villain or incompetent or anything like that. The difference between his leadership and uh, Josh Hartnett's character as a sergeant is very subtle. I I think it's par for the course for this film. A lot of it is depicted relatively realistically. And even when they're laying it on thick, they like, do a good job of that thick coat. And I think if, uh, just from a casting standpoint, when you cast Jason Isaacs, you kind of just do away with any hope of having an incompetent character. Yeah. That's true. You can make him bad, but he's not going to be incompetent. Yeah. You can make him evil. Mm -hmm. You can make him funny. You can make him scary. You like, you can do a lot (laughs) with Jason Isaacs, but that dude always knows what he's doing. I don't I don't think he can pull that off. Yeah. I got a question for you guys cuz I'd love to hear an opinion other than mine on this. If you're Tom Sizemore as an actor. Yeah. How are you portraying this character differently from the army ranger sergeant that he portrayed in Saving Private Ryan? What do you do as him as an actor? And do you think that he did play a different character or did he tap into kind of that same old will? I don't really know that I have an answer. I'm curious to see what you guys think when you compare the two performances. I felt like it's a subtle difference in my mind because we definitely get a lot more intense moments with Sizemore throughout. I I can't remember if this was a quote from Scott or a review, but it, it said that This movie is like the first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan, except the whole thing. And Eh, I mean, it not not quite as intense, but yeah, it's a firefight the entire time. Sure. Right. Once they once they hit Mogadishu and shit goes south, like it goes till almost, you know, until like the last five minutes of the movie. Sizemore feels much more in control, higher up the food chain and much more like he is entirely sick of this shit. And he is going to get the job done. Whereas in Saving Private Ryan, he's more, feels like more of a traditional sergeant where he is like the middleman between, you know, the grunts and the higher ups. And he's trying to manage that relationship the best he can because that's, that's their job. And in this, it just felt like he as a character feels like he has way more control. Not control necessarily in that, he can't say we're not going to turn around, 
because he had to, but control in the like how it's going to get done when it's he's in the field is up to him. Like he had more authority. Yeah, exactly. He's the Tom Hanks character, I think. Hmm. So I think Tom Sizemore's performance in Saving Private Ryan is probably more akin to his performance in Heat for me. Not to throw any shade on his performance in this, but Katie, like you had said before, we don't get a whole lot of extra characterization in this, and we're just kind of judging people based on, for the most part, what they do instead of what they say with, you know, the occasional like side speech by Eric Banner or what have you. But in, in saving private Ryan and in heat, he's kind of the second banana Mm -hmm. who is formed like this hetero life mate kind of love story with a main character. Like he's very much focused on Tom Hanks in saving private Ryan. And he's very much focused on, uh, Robert De Niro in heat and taking a lot of his cues from them and is very protective of them. Right. Yeah. And dying on missions that they, uh, that they get put in by, by this person that they are platonically in love with. Whereas in this, it's a completely different dynamic. That's not a part of his personality that we, we really get to see or that he has to tap into. Yeah, he doesn't have a, a, any other character that he's attached to specifically. Right. No, not even the blind guy driving for him. He's just trying to get everybody out alive as much as he can. Yeah, he's just showing up and doing the job and then going back in to do the job with a hole in his neck. Ah, shit. Bullet missed your jugular by about three millimeters. Don't move. All right, all right. Yeah, I think you're right in the sense that he does portray a level of jadedness just comparing mcknight to certain horvath he does have that believable level of veteran who's been around the block jadedness where what he says carries some weight because you know he's seen some shit even though he's not collecting dirt and throwing it in his backpack in this one they take the opportunity to have him walk through gunfire like he just does not give a fuck. Mm-hmm. Maybe twice in this one. I can remember a specific scene where he is like doing the chesty puller, right? Where he is like not cowering, not hunkering down, just walking upright to whoever he needs to talk to while bullets are just exploding everywhere, left and right, and just pinging off of everything. He was like three paces away from telling somebody that Charlie don't surf. yeah so i you see that in horvath as well well i think the big difference for me is this character would not point a gun at ed burns's head and tell him to shut his stupid mouth that that's kind of the scene that really separates these two characters for me yeah is this character does not have that breaking point no like i said he seemed he he is a little more self-confident and a little more he's, like he's made of sterner stuff. He's leading this shit, and he does not have time for a breakdown or that. Again, I think for Sizemore, it's a relatively subtle-ish performance for a soldier, I suppose. So, Tom Sizemore isn't famous for having a whole lot of range, sure. But during my cursory perusal of IMDb while I was getting ready for the episode. I was reminded of something. Oh, yeah? 
my first Tom Sizemore movie, Heart and Souls with Robert Downey Jr. I don't think I've seen that. <laughs> I haven't seen that, but I've heard of it. When I was little, I fucking loved it. It's great. Like, Robert Downey Jr. is haunted by four ghosts that can't make it to the afterlife, and they just kind of are his babysitters and take care of him and are trying to get him to live a fruitful life, but then they, like, disappear when he grows up, and then they come back and drive him crazy, and hijinks ensue. But he's one of these four ghosts, and he's goofy as hell, and I loved it. Really, really, really different side of Tom Sizemore that I never saw again. Just thought I'd throw that out there for anybody who's like, Tom Sizemore is always this crazy person, but no, not always. And now it's time for the breakdown, where we ask ourselves our three questions. What was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it? Who's going first? You know who's not going first? <laughs> not Dan. <laughs> Liam? Katie can't throw it to herself, so. No, so Liam, it's all you. So the objective of this film, from being generous, I think is to just really do right by the soldiers that were there, and in particular the soldiers that gave their lives during this mission that went all tits up. And that's not like extremely generous to say. I think that was definitely like a big part of the reality poll that they were trying to keep one hand on base with. And from there, you know, they might have reached a little bit further in some places than than with others. They might have had some blinders on to things that maybe they could have paid more attention to. But I think that was where they were trying to keep their center. In just things from what the author of the book, Mark Bowden has said, I think at first he just thought it was a really good story and he just thought it was a, a really engaging, enticing story that people would want to read about. I think how he went about collecting the information for that story was very respectful, but I don't know if he thought of it in a larger context as far as, you know, doing right by the dead and, and, and so on and so forth. But I think the movie definitely takes that kind of perspective. It reminds me in the editing and the final product and how we're following these disparate groups of guys through this singular battle. It reminded me kind of like a very small scale longest day or a bridge too far. I think hmm. it's this is kind of like the heir apparent to that style of war storytelling. And I think that's one of the reasons why it was so easy for me to follow is having already seen those two movies where you understand that, like, not all of these people are going to be intersecting and we're going to jump from these folks over here to those folks over here. Where it really started to feel like that for me was with the first two guys and then like third guy who kind of get separated and then find their way together and then mm -hmm. fight their way back to get to the place. Tom Hardy. Yeah, that really felt like a, a, you know, when Smalls comes up and joins them again, you know, it's, yeah, I can that see that felt very much like a longest day kind of uh, subplot that, you know, we may, we may never see these guys again, but this is a thing that really happened. This was their experience and God damn it, we're going to show it. Now, I think what in particular, the longest day, but to a certain extent, a bridge too far as well had going for it 
that this movie lacks is that other perspective where you get to see a lot of the, it's not so limited in its point of view where it's, Oh, just from the perspective of the American soldiers. So you, you got a little bit more historical context. Maybe that's because it was done well ish after the fact, whereas this was not that terribly long after, after this conflict. And maybe there was, especially when you're dealing with, you know, Nazi Germany, there's a whole lot more documentation on what was going on there than I'm sure there was in Somalia in the middle of a civil war with like guys riding around on like beat up pickup trucks with like machine guns mounted on the back of them. You know, it it seemed a lot more ad hoc as far as the, the Somali forces that the UN and the U S were up against. I think it was on target for what it was going for. I think the target was perhaps a little limited in its, in its scope for me, because when you do, when you're telling a story like this, in particular, when you're trying to do right by the servicemen who died during a conflict, that's obviously the side that you're going to be taking. So the opposing forces do tend to get a little bit othered. This is not the most egregious example of this that we've seen. And I'm sure we will see other examples that are a lot more egregious. Uh, we've seen some movies where it's kind of egregious and they also don't do right by the people who gave their lives in the conflict. So, I mean, this is by far not the, the, the worst offender in this respect, but I think they probably could have done a little bit better in creating that context for the conflict. Did I like it? I think if I'm judging this movie on its own, I didn't love it. I thought it was a, an engaging watch. I think it was well put together. The The acting was decent. The writing was so-so. But yeah, obviously, Ridley Scott knows what he's doing. The editors knew what they were doing. It was well shot. I think in comparison to other movies that came out around the same time or in subsequent years, I like it a lot. So in the context of what else was going on, I mean, because this was... Dan, I'm sorry we weren't on this episode, but uh, this was around the same time as Behind Enemy Lines, wasn't I it? I thought about mentioning this earlier, and I was like, you know what? They weren't there. I'm not going to mention it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, there were a lot of comparisons on, on reviews. I think it is 2001, actually. Same time. Yeah, because I remember Behind Enemy Lines came out right after 9-11, right? Yeah. This is... Far and away better than Behind Enemy Lines. Oh, for sure. This is, you know, the general in this, much better than Gene Hackman is the general in Behind Enemy Lines. Like, there's just (laughs) so many ways that you can compare these movies. And Black Hawk Down takes Behind Enemy Lines out back behind the woodshed every day of the week. (laughs) There's no comparison, which is why it's fun to compare them. So, I mean, like. Yeah, am I going to sit down and be like, you know what, I'd really like to watch Black Hawk Down. Uh, This is the first time I've seen this movie. Oh, shit. I didn't even realize that this whole time. All right. Yeah, I've (laughs) I've never seen this movie before in my life. Look at Liam burying the lead. (laughs) It's like his second favorite activity. And like, I had plenty of opportunities to watch it. And I just chose not to because this is not a movie that ever enticed me to look at it before. And... I'm not really enticed by the movie to go back and revisit it, but... (laughs) But you're not disappointed that we made you watch it. 
no, I'm not mad about it. I'm not disappointed about it. It's, it's a, it's a pretty good movie. It's just not one that I like very much, but if you put it next to like behind enemy lines and we were soldiers and fuck, even the outpost has a lot of its DNA from this movie. And this movie is better than the outpost for my money. Yeah. So on its own, not a whole lot to say about it, but put it up to some other movies of its, of its era and its ilk. And I think it does surpass a lot of them. Dan, what did you think? So that was a, that was a yes. You liked it. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. I think we're trying to summarize here. Yeah. Yeah. I think I liked maybe. Yeah. It was good. It was good. 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 good Not going to choose it out of your DVD library for funsies. But you liked it. This is not making it into my DVD library. Right. Like, I'm not going <laughs> to own this one to like, it's, oh man, it's Friday. It's Black Hawk Down night. Like, it's not, <laughs> like, we're not going to have watch parties. I'm not going to have friends over. I get like, that. It's, I mean, yeah. Generally speaking, this is a action driven war film. This is like a combat action war film, which is its own specific subgenre. And I think it's fair to say for all three of us, that is not our favorite subgenre within war films. You know, we just talked Die Hard on DCE, and we can appreciate a good action movie here and there. But for its two and a half, almost hour runtime, like there were moments where I, I wouldn't say I was bored, but I was like, there's a lot of shooting in this movie. And I get it. You're trying to depict something that was an 18 hour firefight or whatever. So like, Giving the audience a taste of that length is kind of part and parcel. But anyways, to go back to our actual questions here, I'm not going to disagree too much with Liam here. I think the objective, Ridley Scott's objective specifically, was to depict the Ranger Task Force's experience in this battle. And to give some context for it, but not too much. As I mentioned earlier in the episode... The perspective is pretty important here. I think it really is trying to give you the American perspective of this battle, mostly from the guys on the ground in the firefight and a little bit here and there of General Garrison and the guys in the surveillance helicopter up high, etc. But again, I think the choice of never showing Adid or any other Somali in really a private moment where they were talking amongst themselves or talking about the Americans or talking about their tactics was clearly a choice. Like it was a matter of perspective. So this actually takes me back to Oppenheimer for a second, not to like revisit that entire film, but the sort of difference in understanding when a director and a writer, you know, a writing team make a subjective choice to tell a story from a certain perspective and then remain consistent with that idea. So in Oppenheimer, famously, I disagreed with a lot of Christopher Nolan's subjective choices, but it was clear that he was maintaining continuity with showing things from Oppenheimer's perspective. So I have to kind of separate that from what I would have liked that film to be to what they were actually doing and whether they were successful at doing it, which again, go listen to that episode if you want to hear me shit on something for two and a half hours. <laughs> so I kind of have to set aside what I would have liked this film to be in terms of showing the bigger political machinations of what the U.S. is doing in East Africa and why does that matter, our relationship to the U.N. 
as well as the opinion and perspective of any of the Somalis, including Idid, or even people who were maybe against Idid yet still uh, took arms against the Americans in this firefight, which is a thing that happened. He had numerous clans kind of putting aside their differences to participate in this fight specifically. But I don't know that I can fault him for picking a perspective. Many stories, books, films, whatever, come from a specific perspective, and you're trying to get a certain feel going by making that choice. I think The Outpost is the most clear example of a film that is like this. Because just like this movie, we don't get any of the political stuff about Afghanistan and The Outpost, and you don't really ever get the perspective of one of the Afghan fighters. You're just seeing what it's like for these American soldiers to defend that outpost in a very shitty situation, which is where this film takes us as well. And I think Eric Bana's line about why soldiers do this and what they explain to people back home about their experiences is crucial in buying the perspective of this film. Now, Is it on target? I agree with Liam. That is a pretty small target. And having, you know, a minute of introductory text giving you some quick context and a really hardcore blue filter to show clearly the difference between the present and the past, which I think is very classic Ridley, very 2001 Ridley Scott. And like, I can't even <laughs> shit on it. Cause I'm like, Hey man, you got your signature. And at this time period, that was Ridley Scott's signature. So mm-hmm. I don't love it, but I'm just going to accept that that is what it is. There were no weird slow motion moments in this movie, except for when the one soldier sees the hand with the wristwatch on it. I think they kind of either paused the screen or just slowed it down for a couple of seconds, but it wasn't exaggerated like in Gladiator. There just wasn't all that. Why did he take that hand? Because clearly he knew it was going to be important for someone. I mean, it's it's a little bit like the moment in Saving Private Ryan, except it's not his own hand, but... He knows if there's Mm -hmm. a chance of getting it back to the surgeon and getting it reattached in a timely manner that that, he might save that guy's hand. So I get it. But my point being, from a technical perspective, they didn't get carried away with weird slow-mo stuff that just looks bad from this era. He didn't do that. Why didn't he do that? I don't know, because I would expect Ridley Scott to do that in 2001. So I'm very happy to see that. Maybe Jerry Bruckheimer slapped his knuckles with a ruler or something and was like, hey... If you want to do some spinning around Michael Bay shots, we can do that all day. Right. But you keep that slow-mo out of my movie. (laughs) You can have the blue filter and you can have the Michael Bay shots. Keep that slow down shit out of my movie. So, yes, I think for that, I don't want to call it myopic, but for that very specific target, I think he was on target. It won two Oscars. Like Liam said, compared to other things being done at this time, it is leagues above and beyond. And you just have to respect the amount of preparation and research and involvement from the original soldiers that they took on in this production. Is it perfect? No, of course not. Nothing is. And again, it walks that line of some of the lines being a little tropier, a little corny, but by, you know, not swelling the violins behind it, it kind of still works. Most of the dialogue is pretty good in this movie. And Even the tropier lines are lines that we know soldiers have said in real life. So I kind of like, how can I shit on that? I'm like, yeah, this expresses that sentiment pretty accurately. 
would I have liked to see at least a handful of Somali actors put in the front line so that you could have a little bit more realistic ethnic representation in this movie? For sure. It doesn't ruin the film, and it's a product of its time, and Somalia is what it was at this time. If this movie was being made after Captain Phillips, where Barhad Abdi famously plays a Somali pirate and then became cemented as, I think, the most famous Somali actor ever in the history of Somali actors, and you didn't cast him in this movie, then I would shit on you a lot harder and I'd be like, what are you doing? This guy's just waiting for you to cast him as main dude. So... Yeah, it's just a different time, and I give him a lot of leeway for that, even though the further time goes on, the more it is glaring and it does annoy me, but whatever. Um, I think back to Mark Bowden, the author's original point, is it a good story? Fucking A, this is a good story. There is something about, like, you can analyze this from an intellectual perspective, and you could talk about the politics, you could talk about American imperialism, you could talk about all that big picture stuff. But when you're with people on the ground who are dealing with life and death, that really does go out the window. And Hoot's line really carries a lot of that water. So I feel like when you're watching something like this, you can kind of set that aside and be like, okay, well, I'm invested in where this guy is at in this moment in time. And the fact that he really didn't have that much of a say into what he's doing right now, other than joining the military and volunteering for the Rangers, et cetera. But like there is something, and this goes to a bigger point on war films and kind of something that we see all the time. I do find something poetic in the tragedy of the human condition of the soldier on the ground in these situations where in one of the best depictions, I think, of a Somali household, even though, again, the actor isn't Somali, the mother hen scene, which I think is really beautiful. It's almost like a like a painting where you have this mm-hmm. mother kind of trying to corral her many children under her and protect them with nothing, like with a sheet, right? But I found that image really, really powerful and a really great way to show how like there are innocent civilians involved in this conflict and in this situation. And being anyone on the ground here sucks, regardless of what the higher-ups are trying to accomplish. And so there's something tragic about being able to remove yourself from all that higher-level stuff and just be in this shitty experience with these people. So... Yes, it lacks a little perspective that I would have liked to see, but I can let go of a lot of the missing politics and context when something is delivered this well and really shows you a human perspective. So again, imperfect, but I appreciate what they did and what this film is. Do I like it? Yeah, I like this more than Liam for sure. Um, And I'm not Mr. Captain Action Guy either. Again, like my favorite genres are more subtle. Even within war film, I like something that is asking bigger questions and is a little more philosophical. So uh, I'm not the combat action film as a first priority in terms of war films. And this could have been a little shorter. There's moments where it feels like it drags a little bit through the action because I'm someone who can watch action and get bored. Be like, okay, yeah, I get it. They're shooting, right? But it is so competently made that I really can appreciate 
all of it in its entirety. It's not something I need to see more than once a year, but this is a damn good film. And despite its flaws, I do really like it. Katie, close us out, please. You guys have covered so much. I know, I'm sorry. I, I do, <laughs> do want to say that uh, both Abdi and the other guy who was big in Captain Phillips, whose name is also Barkhad, but his last name is Abdirahman, both grew up in the Cedar Riverside neighborhood of Minneapolis. Oh, nice. They came here after the famine. But they are both my age, so they would have been... Unavailable. Yeah, not not quite. <laughs> they would have been quite. seven when the well when it happened, but then when they made the movie, still they would have been in high. They would have been at Roosevelt High School, which is a big South Minneapolis high school. Anyway, I think my breakdown is going to be pretty simple because, like I said, you guys covered a lot of the topics, and to me, the really big objective here is to recreate what happened with as much realism. Not necessarily realistically, but with as much realism as possible from the perspective of the American soldiers and giving a little bit outside of that, but really trying to dial down into the chaotic, frenetic experience that these people went through. And I think even more so to give audiences some sense of what they would feel going through something like this. Many of the reviews talked about that, but this is not a pleasant movie to watch. It puts you on edge. It's uncomfortable at times. It's very sad. A lot of really terrible things happen. No one gets out unscathed. You know, I think the closest one is maybe Eric Bana, but that's just because he's so hardened at this point. So I think that was really their goal was to to get into the nitty gritty of what this experience was like rather than to tell us about why it happened or the wider goings on in Somalia you know we get very little of that as we've discussed and i think it's pretty on target that's what they're going for right it wasn't enough to satisfy me i would have preferred a little bit more character development First of all, just just a little bit, rather than feeling like I'm being the Blackburn in this situation, where you're just dropped in with these guys and go, and you just get to see it from all these different perspectives. And that's just not as, it's not as satisfying or as engaging, because you're like, well, I know some of these people are going to die, and it's really hard to get emotionally attached to them. One, two, three. You know, when they're... Digging in that guy's thigh, trying to grab his femoral artery. I'm thinking like, okay, which guy is this? And I'm like on IMDb like, okay, yeah. Oh, all right. All right. Now I know who we're talking about here. And that detracted from my experience because there was just so much. And I don't know that we needed to have all of those stories as much as I really enjoy, like, I got to say, Twombi, which is just like the best last name which is Tom Hardy. Yeah, Tom Hardy plays him. Um, you know, that's a one of the lighter stories, right? They all make it back. They have their comedic bits where he deafens that poor guy, hopefully temporarily. It was temporary in real life. Oh, good. Good. But I don't know that we necessarily needed those parts of it. Like, we could have given us more character development. But I think... 
the target that they tried to hit was a more broad, give a perspective of what it's like to be any one of these dudes who were on this mission, rather than what it was like for this specific person or this small group of people like we got in the outpost, where it's much more like, here's our dudes, we're going to follow them, and we're going to know a little bit more about them. And did I like it? I felt really conflicted about it, honestly, because the production design is is very strong. The editing, the cinematography, it does not fall into some of Ridley Scott's stylistic choices that I appreciate. One of my biggest concerns about his Napoleon movie is that it looks like he's possibly quadrupling down on the use of a blue filter. It might just be the trailers. I'm I'm hoping it's just the trailers, but... And that movie's going to be like four hours long, because he can use all the filters. I, I mean, as long as it's not just that one. We get a really good version of Scott's directing, and partially that might be because this is not a, one of his babies. You know, he's brought in to be the director, rather than having the vision that he usually brings to his films. He's working. Right. Which I'm not saying that his him having a vision is bad by any means. I'm just saying that he probably wasn't as like tight control with this film because he was brought in to do the job rather than to create a masterpiece type thing. We all need to pay, you know, the college bills for our kids. And for Ridley Scott, that means he gets to make Black Hawk Down, you know totally normal i just don't know that this is a movie of of like or dislike i think it's incredibly well made despite the flaws that we've talked about with the character work and you know the poor portrayal of the somali people in this i think it's a well done movie i'll never watch it again well unless jesper wanted to watch it then i'd watch it with him he's my exception um yeah, I don't think me liking it or not liking it really matters in this case. It did what it needed to do, and I found value in that. As I watched it, I thought to myself, God, this would be really fucking traumatic. These poor people who are going through this on all levels. Like, could I handle this? Could I put myself in this situation and, like, handle the business at hand? And I don't know. Obviously, I've never been put in that situation. Hope to God never will be. But it's not a whole lot of movies that can really bring me to that point where I am so deeply empathizing with what the characters, not an individual character, mind you, what the characters are going through and kind of trying to place myself amongst them. Usually when I watch a movie, you know, you find a person that you're going with and a character that you hate, love, admire, whatever. And that's your connection to a film, or at least it is for me. And with this, it was much more, this is a thing that is happening and we are experiencing it along with them, which is a really difficult thing to pull off. So I got a lot of respect for it, but I still don't know if I liked it or not. (laughs) It was a movie. There's my very unsatisfying answer. Ridley Scott is one to do that. Katie, what are we doing next? Up next, we are covering Mulan, the 1998 Disney animated film directed by Tony Bancroft and Barry Cook and starring Ming-Na Wen, B.D. Wong, and a wide 
array of other people. <laughs> yeah. Miguel Ferrer, James Hong. Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy. How can I forget? Harvey Firestein is in this, and I love him. There is so much to talk about with this, despite it being a kid's movie. So I'm really looking forward to how we're going to cover this one. Me too. It's uh, one of my really good friends, like favorite movie. So he's all excited about it. And I have not revisited it in a while. So I'm pretty stoked about it. Yeah, it's been a while for me too. Well, thanks everyone for listening in and we will see you on our next episode. Bye. Goodbye. Good.